Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. And if you've been listening for a while, then you know that my goal is to bring you stories that are interesting and significant in basketball history. We've already had episodes about when the Lakers team plane crashed with the Lakers on board. We've talked about the very first basketball game ever played. We've talked about the popularization of the jump shot and what led to the creation of the shot clock. I want to bring you the kind of basketball history that hardly ever gets talked about anymore. But also, it's the kind of basketball history that you will want to know if you love this game the way I do. Another way to look at it is like this. I enjoy watching today's basketball even more because I know where the game came from and how today's game is connected to yesterday's game. So with that, let's get on with today's story. Today we're going to talk about Chuck Taylor. You don't have to be a basketball fan to know that name. Almost anyone who knows anything about fashionable footwear knows the name Chuck Taylor. You might even have a pair of his shoes in your house right now. His shoes are those canvas athletic shoes with a piece of white rubber covering the toes. Today the shoe comes in a variety of colors. You can find them in low tops, high tops, some that go all the way up to the bottom of your calves. I've even seen a custom pair that go all the way up to the knees. But who was Chuck Taylor? Why has this iconic shoe been named after him? Well, you might be thinking that he must have been one of the greatest players of all time, but he wasn't. He didn't even play college basketball. But despite that, he still did play 11 years of professional basketball in the 1920s and early 1930s. So let's get into his origin story. Born in Columbus, Indiana, he was a high school basketball star. He was chosen as an All-State player during his junior and senior years in 1918 and 1919. From there, he went directly into semi-pro basketball. Now, semi-pro means that you were getting paid to play the game, but you also had to have a day job to make ends meet. Today, we might call that a side hustle. Basically, basketball was his side hustle. And this is just how it was back in the 1920s. There were virtually no players in that day who could completely support themselves and their families from just their basketball income. The average guy would have had to play 200 games a year to make enough money to live on. Now, while all of this is happening and Taylor is playing semi-pro ball, there was a new shoe company in Boston founded by a man named Marquise Mills Converse. And his company was called the Converse Rubber Shoe Company. He made shoes for men, women, and children with rubber soles. Now you might be thinking, so what? Well, having rubber on the bottoms of the shoes meant that you would not slip as easily when walking. And Converse was one of the very first people who thought that rubber soles would be a good idea. Around 1915, 
he decided to start making shoes specifically designed to be used indoors on a hard surface. And this was a huge development for basketball. Prior to that, players would wear something that looked like a high top dress shoe. They were slippery and it made it difficult to change directions quickly. But that was all they had at the time. So this really was a huge leap in athletic footwear. So Converse starts selling his shoes which were a huge hit with basketball players. They didn't slip on the court. The rubber sole gave more of a cushion when playing. It was easier to change direction quickly. All of this was really great for the players. But don't get me wrong, they were nowhere near as comfortable as shoes are today. Because even with these Converse shoes, sometimes players would still finish the game with sore feet or even blisters. Chuck Taylor certainly did. He wore the shoes and his main complaint was sore feet. The shoes were good, at least compared to what was available before, but he thought they could be even better. So around 1921, Chuck Taylor, the basketball player, walks into the offices of Converse Rubber Shoe Company with ideas of how to make the shoe better. He cold called them. He walked in with no appointment, but based on the ideas he presented them, they hired him as a shoe consultant. He helped develop an updated version of the basketball shoe, and the shoe was called the Converse All-Star. But Taylor wasn't done there. Not only was it important to develop a better shoe for basketball, it was also important to develop the market for basketball shoes. In other words, if you wanted to sell more basketball shoes, then you needed more basketball players to sell them to. So Taylor started one of the earliest formal basketball clinics at North Carolina State University. There, he taught kids how to play this amazing game. And he was doing all of this while still playing professionally himself. Whenever he got a chance, he would organize clinics all over the place. He literally traveled all over the world trying to spread the message of the game of basketball. He held clinics in Hawaii, Europe, Africa, Puerto Rico, South America, Canada, and Mexico. Through these clinics, he was literally creating new basketball players everywhere he went. And each of those players needed a pair of Converse to play in. To further promote the shoes in the United States, the company sponsored a barnstorming team that Taylor would play for and manage. The team was called the Converse All-Stars, and as you can imagine, they wore Converse All-Stars on their feet. The team was an extension of the marketing plan to sell more shoes. The better the team played, the more shoes they moved. If TV existed back then, you can imagine a 1920s version of an Air Jordan ad where Mars Blackman says, Money! It's gotta be the shoes! And the team did play well, and they sold a lot of shoes. They were a Chicago-based barnstorming team that traveled around and played basketball alongside the likes of the New York Wrens, the Savoy Big Five, the original Celtics, and the South Philadelphia Hebrew Association. By the way, if you want to know a little bit more about the days of barnstorming, check out episode 2 where I talk about the New York Renaissance and how they dominated the barnstorming scene. And this is actually a good place to take a break. We'll continue with Chuck Taylor's story right after this. Now back to Chuck Taylor. As he traveled around the country, he got to be friends with every significant coach and athletic director in the country. Anyone who wanted the inside scoop on a player or coach only had to get in touch with Chuck Taylor. He knew them all. 
His opinion on a player or coach mattered to the basketball community. He was easily the most well-connected basketball person in the country. He even created something called the Converse Basketball Yearbook. It was kind of like a high school yearbook. It featured the best players, coaches, trainers, teams, and moments of the previous 12 months. It even featured a college All-America team that Taylor selected personally. And back then, it was a big deal for players to be named a Converse All-American. His efforts to popularize the game definitely sold more shoes. After all, that was his purpose, to sell shoes. But the game of basketball itself might not be as popular as it is today if he hadn't taken the game across the globe back in those early days. You could make a strong argument that the game does not make it into the Olympics in 1936 if it wasn't for Chuck Taylor. It simply wouldn't have been popular enough. And even to that end, the Converse All-Stars basketball shoe became the official basketball shoe of the Olympics and the United States Armed Forces. The United States military wanted Converse All-Stars for all of their soldiers to use for athletic training. Now here's the really great part of the story. The company was so enamored and pleased with Taylor's efforts that they decided to rename the shoe after him. He was basically the best salesperson they'd ever had. From then on, the shoe would be called the Converse Chuck Taylor All-Stars, which is why they're still called that today. His signature is incorporated as part of the logo featured on the shoes. And all of this because his strategy worked. More and more kids were signing up to play basketball. More and more colleges and high schools were adding basketball teams. The professional leagues were growing as more fans were willing to spend money to buy a ticket. The sales of the Converse Chuck Taylor All-Stars went through the roof. By the 1960s, nearly 80% of all basketball shoes worn around the world were Chuck Taylor All-Stars. Not even Nike could ever say that 80% of all the basketball shoes in the world are Nike shoes. Converse had total shoe domination. And these shoes were in the game for a really, really long time. Small improvements were made to the shoe regularly, but the basic canvas shoe was part of basketball at all levels from the 1920s through the 1960s. That's a 50-year run with basically the same shoe. I mean, even the Air Jordans give you a brand new model every year that includes improvements over the previous edition. But in the late 1960s, Adidas, or Adidas as the rest of the world correctly pronounces it, they decided to enter the basketball shoe game. And their leather shoe was a major improvement over the canvas Converse version. And not to be outdone, Puma also came out with their own version of a basketball shoe that came in suede and was popularized by the legendary Walt Frazier. The Puma shoe was the first basketball shoe that was not only functional, but incredibly stylish. The canvas Chuck Taylor All-Stars were finished. They were no longer considered a proper basketball shoe. And as a side note, the guy that started Adidas and the guy that started Puma were brothers, and they were extremely competitive with each other. They were always playing the game of anything you can do, I can do better, which is why they both started making basketball shoes at around the same time. Now, 
If I had to provide a list of the people who had the greatest impact on popularizing the game of basketball on a global scale, I would say Michael Jordan, and by extension, the rest of the 1992 Dream Team when they went to the Barcelona Olympics, they showed the entire world what basketball looks like when it is played by the absolute best players in the world. Then, I would say Yao Ming, who really opened up East Asia, and particularly China, with its one billion people, to the NBA in the early 2000s. And third, I would say Chuck Taylor, with all of the clinics that he put on all over the world from the 1920s to the 1960s. Converse would re-enter the basketball market in the late 1970s with a completely redesigned leather shoe, the Converse All-Star 2. This shoe was worn and popularized by Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, and Dr. J until a later model came along called the Converse Weapon. But the original Converse Chuck Taylor All-Stars did not completely go away. The company noticed that kids were still wearing them as a fashion statement. So as any good company would do, they followed the market and kept selling the Chuck Taylor All-Stars as a fashion brand. Which is why you still see so many of them today. They still look great, I mean, as a fashion brand. I wouldn't wear those things to play basketball in my driveway today. I would sooner wear Crocs. And I have. I have played basketball in my driveway with my kids wearing a pair of Crocs. But as for Taylor himself, he would go into semi-retirement in the 1960s, enjoying a life of golf and sunshine in Florida. He would later be named to the Basketball Hall of Fame in the category of Contributor. By the way, the Basketball Hall of Fame has five categories for induction. You can go in as a player, a coach, a referee, as a team, and as a contributor. Contributor is a general category for anyone who makes a significant contribution off the court to the overall game of basketball. And Chuck Taylor definitely contributed to the overall popularity of the game. He lived long enough to find out that he had been elected to the Hall of Fame, but unfortunately he died of a heart attack just a couple of months before the induction ceremony was to be held in 1969. His legacy is massive in the game of basketball. Anyone who loves this game as I do owes him a debt of gratitude. If not for him, it's possible that the game never becomes that popular. And maybe this podcast doesn't even exist. I mean, for that alone, I'm extremely grateful. Chuck Taylor is a metaphorical giant among the actual giants who play this game. He is exactly the kind of person who needs to be remembered by all of us who love basketball and its history. And that's why I do this podcast. I want to make sure that we don't forget the people who helped develop and build this game. Their stories need to be remembered. I love the modern game, but I also love where the game came from. I kind of think of it as reading a book. It's hard to understand the second half of the story unless you've read the first half of the story. That's what basketball history is like for me. Hopefully, that's what basketball history is like for you too. So, that's all for today. This is the story of Chuck Taylor and his amazing basketball shoe. Join us next week as I present the story of the very first game played by the Harlem Globetrotters. And that's next time on Basketball History 101. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. 
Join us next time as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.